you went into the military, it took you months, if not years, to be optimized for that. And now you're put through a one-week course, which is segmented down to several different things. And you're supposed to come out of that and go, I'm ready. It's just, it's not going to happen. That's United States Air Force Academy graduate and retired Air Force pilot Jason Anderson. And he joins the show today to discuss how to get out of that military mindset and get prepared for the civilian workforce. Hello and welcome to the Cami's Khakis podcast. I'm host and creator Bob Howard, corporate recruiter and Marine Corps veteran. I created this podcast specifically for veterans and transitioning service members to help with their journey out of the military and into civilian careers. All of our episodes are packed with essential knowledge from industry experts and veterans like you. Hey, Jason, welcome to the Cami's Khakis podcast. How are you today? Doing great. Thanks for having me, Bob. Looking forward to it. Yeah, of course. You know, I really appreciate you coming on and, and taking your time to discuss a very important topic, which I saw from one of your LinkedIn posts discussing optimizing veterans' thought process and getting their thinking optimized more towards the civilian world. Now, being in the military, a lot of us, you know, we're in the military 24-7. It's not a, a nine-to-five job. So having that mindset can be tough to get rid of. So I would love to hear your thoughts and really how you came to your assertion that TAPS just doesn't work. But before we do that, would really like to hear a little bit about your background and your journey from the U.S. Air Force Academy all the way through where you're at now as CEO of Pre-Veteran. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. So going way back to 1995, I mean, every time I hear that, I'm like, holy smokes, I'm getting older. So um 1995, decide I'm going to be a pilot. So end up going to pilot training in Pensacola, Florida. So I ended up being Navy trained pilot, um, which is kind of interesting. I don't know if the listeners know, but we send about 10% of each service to a sister service, kind of um, in support of the Goldwater Nichols Act 86 to make sure joint warfare is, you know, there's good communication between the services. So I really enjoyed the Navy flight school for a lot of reasons we can talk about in another podcast. Lots of fun stories there. <clears throat> Long story short, end up getting my uh, wings and going to the mighty C-130. Uh, so the next thing was going to Little Rock Air Force Base in Arkansas to get my initial qualification. And then off I went to my first assignment, which was Ramstein Air Force Base. So arrived there in 98 and, uh, I was just in time for Bosnia and Kosovo, so ended up flying combat sorties in there as a co-pilot. Um, and then as uh, just fate would have it, um, I do that three-year assignment and then land in the United States and am at Little Rock Air Force Base during September 11th. So um, next thing you know, I'm in the Middle East for the next couple of years in a variety of locations. So end up spending uh, 2001 to 2003 there. <clears throat> Again, a lot of detail on that, but kind of new um, after doing Bosnia, Kosovo, and then doing Afghanistan, and then being there for the early days of the invasion of Iraq. I had spent five years flying and been in three wars, and I'm like, I need to find something else to do. So um, ended up petitioning for, I guess, kind of looking for a new job, um, ended up kind of finding one below the radar as an exchange pilot to the Japanese Air Self-Defense Force. <clears throat> so my uh, newly married spouse, or uh, I was newly married in 2013, 
And we off we went to Japan to go to Tokyo for language school immersion, which was a 14, 15 month program. And then next thing you know, I'm in a Japanese squadron, uh, 500 Japanese folks and myself <laughs> in the middle of uh, close to Nagoya, Japan. So um, it wasn't planned this way, but I ended up spending about five years in that assignment. And uh, geez, uh, I think there was one GS-11 in, in uh, Hawaii that knew I existed, but I was getting paid. Money was going into my account. So it was, uh, again, lots of interesting stories wrapped up in that. And then uh, finally, I finished my last six years at the Pentagon, selling a whole bunch of defense hardware equipment to Japan, obviously leveraging that skill set I developed, uh, including speaking Japanese um, for that exchange job. Wow. An extremely storied career there. Lots of action. And I don't know how many of our veterans listening remember Bosnia, but not to make you feel even older, but I remember sitting in sixth grade learning about the bombings there. So definitely that's, that's something awesome. that <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. But I you know, I remember those conflicts. I mean, I mean I was eighth grade when nine eleven happened and you know, then I, I eventually joined in two thousand six. But it seems like you had a lot of experience and a lot of different things that you happened. So you probably picked up a lot of different skills on top of obviously learning Japanese and flying planes. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I, you know, if you kind of look back at that 20 year career that I had, um, a couple things kind of stand out to me. One, I went into it just going, I mean, honestly, I mean this, I just wanted to have an interesting career and I got that <laughs> in spades. Um, the other thing I think was the big takeaway was, you know, going to Japan and it just being me and my wife literally on an island with zero support from the Air Force. I, I want to be kind, but I mean, it's such a one-off job that, you know, the closest base was three or four hours away and it was either Yokosuka or Yokota, depending on how you traveled. So we were literally on our own in a foreign country and it was, it was very stressful. Let's put it that way. Um, it took us quite a while to acclimate, but what you find out is that um, you're in Japan, so you don't have any tools. And I think one of the biggest kind of uh, takeaways for me was uh, that really ended up kind of leveraging into pre-veteran is I had to literally figure out everything by myself. So um, we were there on our own. Um, as you can imagine, I'm sure there's some folks who are listening who can appreciate this. But every time I picked up the phone to call Yakota, which was our technically our serving base because I'm an Air Force guy, but it was three or four hours away, I would have to explain, hey, I'd like to get a dental appointment. And they're like, hey, you can come in in the next 30 minutes. And I'm like, well, actually, I can't. Right. I'm four hours away. And then I, th there's this rehearsed speech of I'm an exchange pilot and, you know, I got to do this and that and I got to really coordinate. And I mean, and so the conversation every time we did that was painful. So um, the moral takeaway that ended up launching into pre-veteran was I need to develop my own tools and kind of think differently. So I would definitely say that that genesis was there at that almost final assignment in Japan had a lot of influence. Yeah. And you hear that often with a lot of entrepreneurs where it's a lot of trial and error, figuring out the basics, almost, you know, excuse the pun, but flying by the seat of your pants and trying to figure out how to do the basic task can sometimes be a larger endeavor than one would think. And I think you touched on this again in optimizing your civilian thinking or optimizing your thinking like a civilian. And 
what do you see as the major differences between the military and civilian thinking as you made your transition from being in the Air Force for 20 plus years to now? Those are those are great questions. So I'll kind of start off with by telling you a bit about my transition. And so after leaving Japan, after a seven-year stint in Japan, if you kind of add it all together, and then a six-year stint at the Pentagon, in 2014, we moved back to Wyoming, which is where we are now. And uh, through, I would call it like, let's say networking or those folks who came to visit me at the Pentagon, which were defense contractors, I ended up getting a entry-level business development role uh, that was remote back in 2014 before COVID, right? So this was way before remote was cool. I was hired into that and it was a wonderful company. Um, it was called Rockwell Collins. It was a Cedar Rapids, Iowa-based company, about a $6 billion annual revenue company. So for defense, aerospace standards, pretty small, but still a, obviously large at that dollar amount. Um, within a year, I'm promoted to the head of business for Japan, Korea, Taiwan. So I went I went up three to four levels, depending on what company you're talking about. So a, a really hefty promotion, lots of responsibility. It was then in the 2016-2017 time period that I, I figured out that uh, those gaps you just brought up, I had. Um, I felt that I wasn't prepared for my entry-level role, let alone the executive-level role. So that's when I really started scratching my head going, what is going on here? Why was I not prepared? What is the problem? So that began kind of this exploratory exercise that I did where I wanted to understand, perhaps going back to the Japan thing, right? I had to develop my own tools. So I was back in Japan with my family and I wanted to figure out what was going on with transition and got my hands on all the research I could for the last 30 years. And it was very, very, very clear to me that the two years following transition are very problematic. Um, and that bugged me because I knew we were highly competent, educated group of folks that's very driven. Why are we performing poorly in uh, employment, higher education, wellness, and entrepreneurship? So um, once I figured out there was this two-year gap, um, two-year poor performance gap, I wanted to go figure out why. Um, so I hired a cognitive neuroscientist for a year. I chose cognitive neuroscience to focus on because there's nothing more individual than how an individual processes information, um, goes through their own thinking process to then make decisions. So it kind of made sense to me. So in that exploration, Bob, I'll finally get around to answering your question that um, there's three major gaps when we talk about employment in the private sector for those that are leaving the military. The first big gap is communication. Communication, what I mean by that is first having an understanding that the military and the private sectors are very different. So the way you're communicating is going to be different and the purpose for your communication is going to be different. So like in the military, you would do um, a lot of just communicating about the mission, how to get things done. But in the private sector world or preparing for it, rather, you need to really be reaching out to the subject matter experts, come across professionally, come across succinct, ask the right questions, because you're gathering information in order to make yourself set yourself up for success to know more about the industry and the company you want to go into. So that's the mechanism. The second gap you'll have is what I call thinking and decision-making. So kind of going back to that top line comment, I said where the military is different than the private sector. When you talked about and you brought up optimized thinking, what I'm talking about is the military <laughs> is 
your thinking and decision-making calculus is significantly different than it is in the private sector. Here's, let me explain. So the differences between the military and the private sector can generally be broken down into existence, competition, and the need to make money, right? So remember, your thinking and decision-making is driven by the environment, right? So every environment's going to have require different thinking and decision-making. So from an existence standpoint, if we talk about the military first, it's going to be, uh, it's part of the constitution, it's creation. Um, and so long as there is a need for a collective self-defense, it's going to be funded into perpetuity. So there's no threat to its existence. Now go to the other side and you talk about the private sector, there is no mandate for the private sector to exist at all. So that's one fundamental difference. The second is competition. Um, within the military, there's no competitor that threatens its existence. Now go to the private sector. Competition is deliberately designed into the fabric of that environment. So there's antitrust laws to make sure that companies don't get too powerful, but really the purpose of a competitive marketplace is to maximize competition in order to drive down costs and improve quality of either service or product. And then finally, the need to make revenue. So um, the military is a cost center from a business standpoint, meaning all it does is spend money. It doesn't have to make any money whatsoever. And then you kind of juxtapose that with the private sector where you have to make money before you can even spend it. So those environments could not be different and they require different thinking and decision-making. So we need to get you from the military thinking and decision-making into the private sector thinking and decision-making. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. You know, a lot of people don't think about the way that the civilian world is different than the military world, especially in the business aspect. A lot of times, you know, these, you know, I'll call them kids, but people joining the military, they come in thinking they're going to learn a skill and then that they're going to be able to take whatever skills they learn and move it into the civilian world with ease. And unfortunately, about 99% of the time, that's not the case because of the things you just said, where the military doesn't have competition. They are not fighting for existence. They're not really bound by any sort of budget, really. And when they get into that civilian world, they're trying to use the same systems they used in the military. Now, I think you and I can agree for communication standpoint, that doesn't always work. The military can be very direct, can be very crass uh, and you know inappropriate at times. That's kind of that an accepted level in the military where in the civilian world, you're going to be going to HR a lot. Going off of that and in, in understanding that there is a difference between the military and civilian thinking, do you have any strategies that veterans can use to make that transition easier? Yeah. So you said a bunch of really good stuff there. So I kind of want to break down just a few things. One is we found this out and this is kind of fascinating. Um, after we've been running programs now for three years, we believe the cardinal sin of the transition space, the way it's currently constructed is that it does not tell the service member that the military and the private sector are vastly different. So it shouldn't be surprising that if you don't explicitly tell the service member that they're not going to be aware that they're different. <laughs> I know that sounds obvious, but if you're not aware that there's a difference between the two, then you're not going to be aware of the, the gaps you're going to have and the mismatch in your thinking and decision-making that's optimized for the military, not for the private sector. So honestly, 
I don't put the fault on the service member. I put the fault on the system. If the system were to come out and say, hey, guess what? You're optimized for the military, not the private sector. I think most rational service member would go, that makes total sense to me. Okay, I've got gaps. How do I fill them? I just think that that is how service members approach the world because they don't want to be, you know, they don't want to be given a, a handout. They want to be given tools, use those tools to improve their lives, right? So that's the kind of first a- aspect I'd say of that. Now, the next thing, how do we fix it? Well, we need your help, right? Uh, let me explain. Um, once people start talking about the reality that the systems are different, and more people talk about that, more people are going to be aware that they need to fill those gaps, right? So right now, a pre-veteran is very much out there explaining the market in these terms where literally everyone else is kind of saying the old trope of, guess what? All you need to do to successfully get out of the military is you know translate your skill set, and then you're going to have private sector companies clamoring for you, and that's just categorically false. So we believe the transition space has been poorly, poorly structured. So what we want is help from everyone to kind of go, hey, these systems are different. You need to recognize that. And then once you recognize that, you need training, right, in order to bridge that gap between your thinking and decision-making now, which is in the military, and bridge that gap for the private sector now, built into your question you just gave me is an assumption that this is a task that can be done very easily, like a light switch where it's like, hey, guess what? If you simply explain to them that the systems are different, that somehow intuitively that individual is going to figure out what the private sector is like, that also is false. What needs to happen is there needs to be very intentional programming. There needs to be a program that that person goes into and stays with And there needs to be a community and there needs to be support. That's exactly the way we structured our pre-veteran military transition 2.0 system, right? The way we've structured it, because we know there needs to be, for lack of a better term, an intervention into someone's thinking. So the way we kind of construct our 2.0 world is that you enter our system via a five-week cohort-based course, which is delivered via our platform, Learning Management System. And once you go into that course, and it's about a two to three hour per week commitment, once you do that, you gain a new understanding of the private sector, a new language, and a new mindset. But then that's just the beginning, right? So then after you complete that five-week course, we put you into our community, which is a platform, which is supported, and then optimizes you, which means there's way more to do than just career search. You know, there's making sure you're squared away with insurance, uh, whether it's going to be VGLI, SGLI, or private sector insurance, making sure you're ready for your VA claim, making sure you're financially ready, making sure your health and wellness is good. And I kind of segment that out as your individual family optimization and then your career optimization in order to be successful, right? No light switch here. You have to go explore careers, which means you need a model to go explore these careers. But once you have this model to go explore them, you are going to gain competency in the private sector, understanding of the private sector, understanding of that industry, understanding of that company, and you're going to feel way more comfortable kind of, uh, and this is why we say what we sell is autonomy, right? Helping you regain your autonomy when you leave the military, 
so that you're comfortable to operate in the private sector before you actually get to the private sector. So I hope that kind of answers your what you said or your your comments and your questions just a moment ago. Yeah, absolutely does. And I really appreciate your insight and the length at which you answered that question, because I think it gave a lot of valuable insight for the listeners to consider. I think a lot of times what happens is when they're getting out, they kind of have, you know, that deer in the headlights, oh, no look of what am I going to do? I need to find a job. And we end up taking a job that is almost the first one that's offered to us. I mean, I know I did when I got out and, you know, greatly regretted it, you know, just a few months later. So understanding, you know, what industry they want to get into, what companies they like, I think it is infinitely valuable. And I want to go back to some things you said earlier. And I want to go back to something that I'd mentioned earlier that you had posted on LinkedIn about taps not working. Can you maybe expand upon that a little bit to help our listeners who are going through taps or are going to go through taps make the most out of it if they can? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So why did I say tap the program record is not working? And the simple answer is it's not working. So let's first talk about how it's designed or rather the model that is wrapped around tap. So if, if you're not familiar with it, um, if we haven't been through it, um, tap is pretty much a one week long exercise where the DOD tries to cram everything into a week, everything from VA benefits to insurance to career tracks and things like that. I mean, if you just literally look at the fact that they're trying to do it all in one week is just absurd on its face. I mean, anybody worth their salt can kind of, that can think openly goes, that just doesn't pass the sniff test, right? You you went into the military, it took you months, if not years, to be optimized for that. And now you're put through a one-week course, which is segmented down to several different things. And you're supposed to come out of that and go, I'm ready. It's just, it's not going to happen, right? Um, the biggest complaint I think we have within TAP, because you got to kind of pull it apart a bit, is there's simple items and then there's complex items. So I try to make a distinction between the two because the simple items are VA claim insurance. Those are simple knowledge transfer, meaning, hey, you've done your career, you get your medical records together, you do your DBB to make sure that you got your VA claim set up. That's actually a great process now. I got to give them kudos for that. Um, and then the insurance, you know, do you want uh, do you want to do VGLI? Uh, do you want to get private sector insurance? I, I think that just the nature of it being set up in one week, it's just incredibly overwhelming. So that part of it, you just can't absorb that much information. Even if you go to tap two or three times, you're going to get a little bit more out of it. But fundamentally, those those knowledge transfer items of VA claim and insurance are good. The really hard part is the career, though. And you can't just do, let's work on our 90-minute you know, elevator pitch. You don't even know what you want to do. You haven't even tried, right? Typically, right? We don't understand the differences between the private sector and the military, right? We already went over that. But then moreover, if you don't understand the private sector, how it's organized, how they make money, how a role you go into a profit-making enterprise, your whole cloth missing context for how you can plug into an organization, bring your talents to bear, and then benefit the organization, which is ultimately what you need to do. So when you kind of talk about what I just brought up, the 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 way TAP is structured and how it's delivered is just not working. So um, I actually, in that post you were talking about, went further to say that TAP does more harm than good. I will stand by that all day long. 
for one simple reason. If it does not make the service member aware of the differences, the vast differences between the military and the private sector, we're already starting off on faulty foundation, right? So if your program is leading service members down the path of they don't need to change fundamentally in order to flourish and do well in the private sector, then your program is doing more harm than good. So that's kind of a strong point, but it's intended to be strong because the other thing I want to impress upon your listeners is that they have choice, right? I mean, I know they haven't had choice in their four-year or 30-year career, but you have it now and you're going to have it in spades the second you walk out that door and no one checks up on you. I don't know about you, Bob, but no one called me, no one texted me, no one checked up on me. So guess what? You get to be Jason back in Japan going, I need to develop my own tools or, or, and you need to have done that beforehand and you don't have time because you're in your last 12 months and it's crazy. So this is why we say you need a program, you need new tools, you need a community, you need support. And that's exactly why we created Pre-Veteran and it works great. Yeah, I would totally agree. I mean, I went through TAPS back in 2017, getting ready to get out in March of 2018. And I don't think I've ever used anything from it outside of make sure I do a claim for the VA when I get out and you need a resume. Outside of that, there wasn't much I gained and I certainly didn't get the understanding of how vastly different the civilian world was. Now, I was on recruiting duty. I was in, you know, middle of nowhere in Connecticut. Luckily, there was the sub base in Norwich that was about 20 minutes away from where my recruiting station was. So I had a little bit of civilian immersion, but I didn't have a good understanding of that transition into the civilian world and how different that would be. Now, a lot of veterans, they, when they look at their options, I think a lot of it is, hey, I got the GI Bill so I can go to school, or it's, I need to figure out a way to support my family, I need to go find a job. I think the third and a lot of times hidden or forgotten about option is entrepreneurship. And obviously, you know, as a CEO, pre-veteran, the creator, pre-veteran, you embarked on this entrepreneurship journey and would love to hear a little bit more about how you came to do that. And maybe some of the moments when you went through it that were triumphs or even those moments that were a little scary. Ooh, great questions. Okay. So um, a couple things. One, when you talk about the, the entrepreneurship piece, I, I just think there's there's some folks who are predisposed to entrepreneurship. And I, I think if you kind of look at the different studies out there, it's generally a pretty small market segment. It's usually 4% of any population is, is really like super entrepreneurial minded. Now, let me also caveat that with there's been a bunch of uh, statistics out there over the years that up to 25% of the transitioning service members want to become entrepreneurs. I could tell you that has been scrubbed from the internet. <laughs> and there's a lot of funny backstory here. A lot of organizations that were created when I was transitioning back in 2012, 13, 14, um, came about because of that simple soul statistic, and they ended up developing an entire ecosystem on that. And now these entrepreneurship organizations are kind of organizations looking for a mission. And I'm serious about that because just because you're a service member doesn't mean you're going to be a great entrepreneur, right? I, I'm just being honest. Um, and there's one simple reason is that uh, we, and I'm saying we, because I was very much included in this category, we don't understand business fundamentals. So this is why, if you want to kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together, this is why we have 42,000 plus nonprofits 
in the military uh, that that support military members. And the other statistic to that is first, by far in any sector of nonprofit world, it is the largest. And I guess if you look at it through the lens I just told you, it's the least healthy financially. So 42,000 organizations of which 60% don't make 100K a year or don't, don't get gifts up to 100K a year. Um, where uh, the rest of them are significantly higher than that. So it kind of explains why so many people are so drawn to nonprofit because they want to do something, uh, but it's not a business, it's a hobby, right? So you got to kind of work through that. So how do I recommend military members go through entrepreneurship? I don't think we talked about this, Bob, beforehand or otherwise, but I was really attracted to entrepreneurship going back to 2010, 11 remember I transitioned in 14. So I actually was so interested in it. I wrote a book called Active Duty Entrepreneur, which still has a really unique little <laughs> following out there. Um, because I do think if you want to explore entrepreneurship, you need to do so four to five years before you leave the military, because there is so much to figure out about entrepreneurship before you leave the military, because you need to figure out how to make money, right? That's that's business 101. And you're just, we're not predisposed to that as military members for all those reasons I told you before and how the military environment is just very different. It's very good at spending money. It never has had to make money. Therefore, you're an extension of that environment and you just go, I don't know how to make money. So that's, we don't want to put service members. Um, I very much don't advocate for service members coming out of the military to go into entrepreneurship once they leave the military. You're at your most vulnerable time then. Um, you're you're there, you're really excited about entrepreneurship, but you're going to burn through a bunch of cash, still not really with a roadmap for how to make money. And I can tell you as a business owner, it takes years to set up the pathway to make sound revenue channels. The only maybe different kind of way around that is through franchising, which already has obviously everything turnkey. And I know we make really good franchisees. So let me also say, uh, so what we teach at Pre-Veteran is the side hustle into the full-time business. Um, we do that for a couple of reasons. One, you need to get food on the table and, and make sure your family's good to go. Entrepreneurship is a bad way to do that um, out of the gate, especially if you're inexperienced. Um, the side hustle is really important, which is why we're always an advocate of get a job first, do well on the job. Once your learning curve has dampened and you have time, start side hustling, right? Um, and there's a lot of stuff you got to do where you got to notify your business or they'll fire you. They, they don't mind you having a side hustle. It's not the military, um, but you need to notify them, make sure they're good to go. But you need to develop business acumen. You need to understand how products and services are delivered to customers and how they pay for it, what those models look like. More, more importantly, you need to develop a product or service that's super valuable, right? And this is where we get from nonprofit to profit, right? Nonprofit world, you need to go find people who will just... Um, are aligned with your mission, want to give you money to support something. Um, the for-profit world is you need to create something valuable enough. People are going to pay out of pocket for your product or service because it's that valuable. Um, so we, again, advocate for the side hustle um, and then turn that into a full-scale business um, when it's ready and when you're ready. Yeah, I think that's definitely some wisdom there that is extremely useful for veterans who are looking at being an entrepreneur, especially in today's market with so many companies doing layoffs. It can look like an attractive option, especially when you see people who, you know, especially in startups where, you know, their startups didn't do so well and they maybe got laid off two or three times. Now, like, okay, well, 
if this isn't working out, then I should be my own boss. That way I can have control. And it almost gives them uh, that feeling of control that maybe they were missing while they're in the military. Uh, you know, as you know, military tells you where to be and when to be and literally every kind of step you take. So having that option back again can really uh, look attractive. So from you know all the lessons you gave us and all the wisdom there about being an entrepreneur, what do you think would be the, the most important thing that you took away from your entrepreneurial journey? Um, so like, this is going to be intended to be humorous, but for those of you that ever traveled to Europe, um, and <laughs> there's this rule of thumb for going to Europe of whatever you pack half it and whatever you're bringing for money, double it. Right. I mean, it's just kind of a, a, a rule of thumb, bring less stuff, bring more money. Entrepreneurship. It, it's funny, but it's similar. Whatever you think it's going to take timeline wise to develop your business, quadruple it. It's going to take longer. Whatever you think it's going to take from a, a capital standpoint, at least double it. So this gets back to the military mindset we talk about. Um, we are expect people in the military, they have a heuristic, which means they've got a neural pathway that's used to action and things moving fast. That does not happen in the real world, whether it, in the private sector, right? Things move very slowly and deliberately for a reason, because if people make bad decisions, they go out of business. So they process their decisions. Um, so you need to get used to that sales cycle is way slower. It's going to take more money for the setup. It's going to take longer, which is again, why we talk about the side hustle being so important because you want to, you want to build a substantial foundation while you're supported. And then from there, you can make the decision um, when it looks like you, you know, you're going to grow and then you can do it with much more um, uh, surety, much more security, and you can keep your relationships intact, which you might kind of burn out otherwise if you chose to do it and move quicker in a market that just doesn't do it that fast, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. You know, entrepreneurship is definitely an uphill battle, but I think once you see those fruits of your labor, which can take some time, I think it's definitely worth it. And I think it's probably one of the more rewarding career paths that you can take. And I don't know if you can echo that or you can agree with that, but that is uh, you know, how I would see entrepreneurship. Well, I, I can definitely tell you, Bob, uh, I, I didn't mention this before, but I did leave. Uh, so I was a full-time employee side hustling um, and I was a full-time employee with Collins Aerospace, which is a part of Raytheon Technologies. Huge, huge, huge company. I was I made them aware of everything I was doing. And then I elected to leave the company about a year ago. So I've been doing pre-veteran full-time, but I was side hustling it for the better part of five years. Um Five years of, well, of those five years, two and a half in programming, and then the two and a half years prior to that in kind of program development research and stuff like that. But going through and being a full-time employee and seeing how business works firsthand and getting involved at different levels, it just gave me a lot of confidence, right? I, I know how the business world works. I know at the pace it works. I know what they need for proof. I know how to make contracts. I know who to talk to. I know what business development looks like. So it was extremely useful, but I can tell you, I have to fight that mindset of, you know, trying not to move too fast. I still do that. Um, even though I created the tools that <laughs> I teach people about to be patient and understand that it's a different world, um, I have to remind myself uh, of that frequently. But I can also tell you, there's no way in hell I could go back and be an employee again. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I, I bet, you know, once you get in that mindset, it can be tough to go back to listening to someone else again or 
taking that direction from somewhere else. And it's funny, you talk about you you needing to slow down. And I can remember one of my senior enlisted advisors talking about how, you know, move fast and break things. We can always go back and fix them. And I don't think that's a great mindset for the civilian world. Maybe it works for the military, but not so much in uh, this context. Uh, 100%. You bring up a great example. And we talk about it a lot, right? Uh, Fast decision-making is rewarded in the military, but you also take on significantly more risk, even though you never think about it that way, right? It's But you want to think and act fast. You know, you think of the patent quote, I'll take a plan, a partial plan, uh, violently executed more than a fully baked plan a, a week late. I'm telling you, that's how the private sector works. So it's a perfect reflection of how we're bringing a mindset that rewards quick thinking into a private sector environment, which abhors that. Um, it's something that the private sector will view as high risk and then a little bit of belligerency, which again, kind of disrupts teams. Um, but you could see there's a huge language gap there. And again, back to the thinking and decision-making gap that we had talked about earlier in the discussion. Yeah, absolutely. You know, lots of great points throughout the entire conversation today. Um, you know, as we wrap up here, really appreciate you talking about that decision making and how veterans need to optimize their thinking for the civilian world, because the world is just very, very different. And I think you you made a lot of great points to illustrate that. And I also want to thank you for talking about pre-veteran and about how that program has been made to help them optimize that thinking. Now, from all the great things you said, I'm sure a lot of veterans are going to want to know about the upcoming cohort. Could you please tell us a little bit about how they can look into that? How can they how they can look up pre-veteran and how they can possibly join that next cohort? Absolutely. So um, what we talked about is we tend to talk about for our individual training of service members, we have a military transition 2.0 system. Entry into that system is through our employment prep course, which is cohort-based spring, summer, and fall. So it's typically February, June, and October, held three times a year. So simply just go to our pre-veteran website, and then within there, you'll see uh, at the top of the menu is going to be training. So then you can, you know, pull down menu to individual training, look it over. So Our program is a fee-for-service program. We know that that is widely balked at in this industry, but let me just kind of say this. The private sector fee-for-service is extremely normal. And for whatever reason, um, with the military slash transition population, fee-for-service is balked at. I encourage you to revisit that thinking process. This would be a perfect example of how this doesn't work well within the, the private sector. So you might consider changing your thinking process for that because if you can pay for a service which guarantees way better results, it's kind of a no-brainer. So let me kind of talk about that for a minute. So when you go into our system, which by the way is typically 999 bucks, but is discounted now for the holidays, you can check it, check it uh, on the website. Um, what we do is you go through that initial program and then um, for no additional charge, when you go into our community, you get a bunch of additional training, career pathways, and also a salary and benefits course. You can't just take a salary and benefits course and negotiate a higher salary without going through additional training to understand industry companies and how they structure roles and stuff like that. So again, no easy button, but there is a process and it works great. So the folks who go through our salary and benefits course, which is included in the 2.0 system, 
average an additional 17,000 above their initial offer extended to them. So in other words, I can pretty much guarantee if you give me 999 or in this case 799 in the special we're going to you're going to be able to negotiate 17,000 extra bucks on the end of that. So if you were to run a, re a return on investment it's an incredible return on investment. So go to the pre-veteran website. Um, it's perfect time to get into the February cohort now. If that doesn't work, then the June cohort. But we encourage you to do that. And you can always reach out to me at jason at preveteran.com or find me on LinkedIn. I'm sure Bob will put those links in the uh, in the comments. Absolutely, Will. And again, we really appreciate you coming on. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And I uh, hope the veterans here were able to take away a lot of the great points you talked about. Again, thank you and hope we can cross paths in the future. Sounds great, Bob. Look forward to the next opportunity. Join us on the next episode of Cami's to Khakis. Being uncomfortable and exposing yourself to talking to people that you probably never would have thought you'd talk to before, that is what's going to get you in a career that you feel fulfilled and happy.